Now this week is uh, quite a special one as we have two financial experts here with us tonight. I am sure some, if not most of you, know who they are. If you do not, let me just get the formalities quickly out of the way. Uh, Han Liu, he is a certified financial planner and chartered financial analyst. He used to work as an investment banker a few years back before founding Ringgit Plus, an aggregator that helps Malaysians make better financial decisions. Now, he's the founder of Halogen Capital, the first licensed fund manager in Malaysia, specializing in digital assets and innovative investing. Moving on to our other speaker, Mr. Sunny Hamid. He's an economist and certified financial planner. He has over 30 years of experience in the financial markets, uh, which really just shows how old he currently is. And he is a frequent commentator in the media. He has previously worked for companies such as S&P Ratings as a director in the Sovereign Team, overseeing the ratings of countries such as Indonesia, India, Malaysia, and Singapore. So uh, Mr. Sunny will be slightly late. And uh, as you guys have heard, both speakers are more than qualified to address the anonymous questions that you guys have asked us through the week on NGL. But, fair reminder, the things that we are going to say tonight are only our opinions and should not be considered as financial advice. So, uh, without further ado, let's get into the first topic, retirement. How much is actually enough for retirement? Now, this is a question that has been asked by quite a lot of you guys as well. Uh, take a look at this uh, example over here. Now 41 years old, single, with today's EPF at 400,000 ringgit, ASB 60,000 ringgit, fixed deposits at 12,000 ringgit. Am I sustainable for retirement while fully able to support and take care of both parents at the age of late 60s? Parents don't have pension. Yeah, this is the question that has been asked by quite a lot of people because they've been wondering, despite having such a huge sum of money, yeah, 400,000 ringgit is not a small sum, uh, uh, they're wondering whether it's sustainable or not. Okay, so let me just direct it to the financial experts. I do have a few resources over here, which is from EPF. The minimum basic savings target that one should have by the age of 55 is 240,000 ringgit. Yeah, so this means by the age of 55, you could have this amount in both your account one and account two combined. Now, this translates into a monthly income of a thousand ringgit for the next 20 years to fund your basic retirement needs and necessities. But yeah, Han, let's dive into this. 240,000 ringgit, 1,000 ringgit per month. Is it enough to retire? And how can one plan for retirement uh, at a young age or perhaps at the, like the example said just now like at 41? Mm, there's so much to unpack there, guys. Um, you know, as um, uh, thanks for the question, Shinji. I think... You know, as a, as a financial planner, this is probably the number one question uh, I get asked uh, uh, in, in, you know, in having uh, uh, advice and done plans for, you know, a few hundred people as of now. Um, first off, I think when we look at the number, first in impression is that it feels very low. How, how, can, how can EPF recommend this, right? It's too low to survive 240,000 to retire or 1,000 ringgit a month. You have to remember there's the, the word basic there that tells you everything, right? Which is uh, to, to say, hey, look, like, if nothing else, if you have this, you can you can spend 20,000 uh, ringgit a month for 20 years. Uh, you know, that, that may be enough to get you, you know, a basic, the most basic housing that you can think of, you know, uh, a room somewhere. Plus, you know, subsistence food, meaning 
we can probably you know not go not not grow hungry right but not much else so i think if you just focus on the word basic uh, uh and then use that to kind of uh, read this table that, that we have here i think that that's the best way to look at it but really uh to plan for retirement right you've got to think of not basic retirement needs right you've got to think of your own personal retirement needs right retirement is not a the same destination for everyone, right? Meaning that the number is going to be different depending on who you are. If you are someone who who lives a very basic life, it could be very close to this, right? Uh, but if you are someone who doesn't, you 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 say, hey, look, I, I want more than just a, a basic room in a very secluded rural location that's very cheap and, and very basic food. You know, I, I want to live roughly how I'm living right now. Um, that's kind of, uh, it's going to be a bit higher than that, right? So, so it's really about uh, uh, first, figuring out what kind of retirement you want, and then working backwards from there, right? And you got to start. You got to start there first, and then the whole process is 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 what we take through with our clients, right? Like, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's a very long process. It's several. I don't have the silver bullet for everyone, but first thing, figure out what you need to spend. It's probably going to be higher than one thousand ringgit a month. Uh, figure out what the number is. Uh, yeah, also another interesting thing about this uh, basic savings table uh, over here is that you guys can actually see what is the minimum amount that you should have in your EPF account right now in order to reach this basic savings target of 240,000 ringgit by 55. So let's say like my current age at 26, the basic savings is 21,000 ringgit. So Meaning, if you are currently at this age and you don't have this amount in your EPF account, then you may have a bit of issue reaching this uh, 240,000 ringgit by the age of 55. And another thing that I want to discuss with you, Han, is that uh, EPF has another figure, actually, which is uh, 600,000 ringgit needed to comfortably retire. So that's not a figure that we talked about, 240k, that's the uh, bare minimum, right? 1,000 ringgit per month. But this uh, 600,000 ringgit over here, it translates to a monthly income of 2,500 ringgit. Now, assuming that EPF pays 5% per year, you actually receive 30,000 ringgit in interest every year. So 30,000, you divide it by 12, that gives you a monthly income of 2.5k. Or even if you decide to do a lump sum withdrawal, uh, you will still get 2.5k per month for the next 20 years. And uh, tracing back on what you said, uh, if people have this amount, uh, 600,000 ringgit, would it still be sufficient to retire or are, you, are we looking at a figure of like 1 million, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, as in, so this, this is last year's, yeah, last year, right? So this, this, this was a statement made by, I think, Hisham, who's the uh, chief strategy officer of the APF. I mean, he said it in response to most people having the same thoughts that we have here the last two minutes, which is, hey, how can EPF say 240,000 is enough? Uh, so Hisham goes out into the, the media and says, oh, actually, right, what we said is, you know, uh, that's basic. If you, want it, if you want a comfortable retirement, and I guess his definition of comfortable is it's not it's, it's a bit higher than basic, right? He says 600,000. Why? Because two, two reasons he gave. One was, yeah, you want a comfortable, not just basic retirement. But two, uh, uh, when people start, uh, when people retire, uh, it might not be today, right? It might be in five years, ten years, fifteen years time. Inflation starts biting in, so he says a number which, which, which I guess he's um, he's comfortable with to say to say that hello, if everybody has this, at least no one's going on the street, right? Uh, so I think that's kind of first thing to say. 
so the, you've got to think of it yourself, right? If you are closer to retirement today, you're, you're 55, you're 59, you're 60, right? And you can probably see yourself figuring out a way to spend 2,500 to 3,000 ringgit a month, right? Saying, okay, if my, if my house is paid off, you know, I don't live very lavishly. Uh, yeah, 3,000 ringgit feels possible, right? Possible. I use possible in the, 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 the broadest of terms. Uh, but if you're retiring in, say, 20 years' time, 10, 10, 20 years' time, you're only kind of a 40-year-old. Shinji, you're 26, is it? You're so young. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're 30 years away from retiring, at least, at least right? So uh, you probably need to start thinking of a much larger number than 600,000 to have the same living standard as somebody who's 55, 60 today with 600,000, right? So you got to keep that in mind. Yeah, so the figure definitely has to be much higher uh, when I reach my retirement age. Yeah, Mr. Sunny is here already. Mr. Sunny, might check with you. Are you here? Yes, I am. Sorry, you're a bit late, yeah. Hey, no, no problem. Uh, let's jump right into the topic. La. Okay, we were discussing about uh, how much is enough for retirement. We touched quite briefly on both amounts, 240000 being the minimum target and 600000 recommended by EPF to uh, comfortably retire. La. So... Let's elaborate more on this. Uh, what do you think about these figures and uh, how, so, how should one plan for retirement? Wow, okay. Jump straight into the uh, deep end of the pool. Um, I saw the, the numbers here. 600,000 works out to be what? 2,500 uh, per That's month, right. is it? Yeah, 2,500 yeah. per month. Uh, living off interest, uh, if assuming that EPF pays 5% per year. Yeah, that, that, that sounds more or less correct I guess um, it's, it's the, the thing in Malaysia I guess is that um, you don't have to stay in the city uh, you can retire uh, you know back in your kampong Kuantan for example and I probably will make your money stretch longer so I think it's 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 a bit more flexible flexible um, 2005 I, I, I although a bit looks a bit tight but I think survivable maybe um, I'm not sure about in 20 30 years time but currently I think in the current situation you would be still able to survive um, of course more is better uh, but, but the bare minimum probably is there. in Singapore the so-called minimum sum set aside um, upon retirement that grows to about um, that's 200 over thousand um, that will give you roughly about a thousand thousand two sing dollars uh, uh, per month, um, but that's assuming that you already have a fully paid up home, um, and so you know it's a little bit different in Singapore. Um, and I maybe if I just give me one minute to explain, um, the majority of Singaporeans live in HDB. Um, they own their homes, and I think you can also do this in Malaysia. They own their homes, um, and a lot of time, their homes are probably three, four bedroom homes because they have a family, children, and such. Um, it's when they reach retirement that they tend to downgrade, and so we now see some uh, granny homes or, or uh, homes which are much smaller, one room, one one hall, meant specifically for for retirees. So you save up, pay up your home, fully paid by the time you're fifty odd. Okay. Um, sell it off. Um, you could also do a reverse mortgage, um, and you get another lump sum of maybe two hundred, three hundred thousand. If you're lucky, four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand from that uh, to supplement your EPF or CPF here. So that adds together to kind of give you a comfortable retirement with a home. Um, and I think that's that's how it works here. I think possible possible for it to work in Malaysia also. 
except that housing prices may be a little bit less predictable than, than in Singapore. Yeah, I, I like the part where Han talked about just now. Ultimately, the figures recommended by EPF, 240,000 and 600,000, is uh, really relative. Uh, some people may need more, some people may need less. So I guess the first step to you know plan for your retirement is to set an amount that you deem is adequate to retire, considering uh, the previous two figures that we gave you guys. All right, now let's uh, move on to the next topic which is the uh, current state of the market. Now, this one is uh, quite interesting. I think Mr. Sunny has, has a lot to talk about this. Uh, what is the current state of the global and local market? And can you share more about ETFs? What ETFs would you recommend? So uh, some resources over here. Inflation has been steadily, steadily moderating globally. We take a look at US inflation from its peak of 9.1%. It has gone, I would say, quite low or relatively low, uh, currently at 3 to 4%. Meanwhile, Malaysia, we are pretty much at the central bank's target goal already. Uh, the latest figure came in at 2%, far away from its previous peak, peak of 47 to 4.8%. However, we still have the uh, Federal Reserve over at the US. They're still looking to maybe continue to raise interest rates. You can see over here, uh, Jerome Powell, who is the chairman of the Federal Reserve, says that, hey, higher interest rates may still be necessary. And um, Mr. Sunny, just talk to yeah. me about the thought process over here. Uh, what is your general outlook in the global and local market for the uh, rest of the year? Okay, for 2023 first. Okay. Um, when we talk about market, probably talk about stock market, more the stock market, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's let's take one step back and tie it to the, uh, to, to the economy. Um, the economy globally isn't doing very well. Um, if you look at Singapore, for example, the latest survey of um, economic economists by the MAS suggested a 1% uh, growth rate. Um, again, lower than the 1.5%, which was a couple of months ago. So tra trajectory-wise, it's quite clear that people are shading down their, their growth figures. Um, even in Europe, Germany is showing PMI numbers which are which have collapsed, and and China and so on. The only one that's doing a little bit better is the US. But when you decipher the US, basically you see that they are actually pump priming at eight and a half percent budget deficit. You know, in in the so-called global financial crisis, they had a nine point eight percent budget deficit. So every scratching their head and say, why why are you um, physically physically spending? at 8.5% or 8.9% deficit when your economy is not in a recession. You're actually adding fuel to a, a, an economy which is still growing, you know, relatively speaking, uh, um, stable, um, but you're adding that. And that's really causing the economy to be a little bit um, supported, so to say. So once once that that budget deficit of 89 wanes, um, I think the, the the tide comes out and the U.S. economy will start to roll back as as the rest of the world, together with the rest of the world. We're really starting to see that happening. Um, the job numbers in terms of revisions have been negative. Every single job headline over the past six months, when revised, uh, has been revised lower. Just give you an example. I think two months ago in June, I think the job figure was about 200,000. 200, uh, quite an okay number. Uh, but then it got revised in July, got revised in August, and now the number sits at about one half of it, one zero four or hundred thousand. 
uh, which is a terrible number if, if it had it come out in the first place. But in the first place, it came out at 200, but revised lower. So everything tells you that the uh, U.S. economy is also showing signs of, of, of weakening um, a bit slower due to certain factors. Uh, we can go into it in the question and Q&A later, but um, overall, I think it's going to slow. Jump over to the stock market, or at least the, the markets itself. Um, I don't see how the U.S. markets can remain where they are. Um, if the economy is slowing and such, I think I don't think it's, it's personally, I don't think it has been discounted fully yet. Um, the rest of the world, um, the markets are, are have already kind of moved sideways. They've not gone anywhere. No one's rallying extremely, extremely high except for the U.S. Um, Europe may start to pull back a little bit. Um, so all in all, I think it's going to be a tough second half of the year for economies and also a tough second half of the year for markets. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let, let me just direct this uh, question to Han because Han, you recently talked about Bank Negara Malaysia's uh, monetary policy. Yeah. Okay. So Bank Negara Malaysia, they kept the overnight policy rate steady at 3.0%. And you said that uh, if not for the Malaysian ringgit weakness, which was uh, recently at 4.67% against the US dollar, uh, you suspect that they might have considered a 25 basis point cut to the OPR to 2.75% instead. So uh, run us through your thoughts over here. And uh, what is your outlook on the uh, Malaysian economy since Mr. Sani has talked about the global economy just now? Yeah, I think uh, maybe I rushed this out, right? No, I didn't. I, I gave it some thought, this one. Uh, but I think there's two parts to this, right? And I, I laid out those two parts, which is uh, most of us know now, uh, uh, Q2 GDP for Malaysia, the, the our economic print was, you know, the lowest for the last kind of one and a half, two years, right? So the 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 steam or rather the steam of this pandemic recovery, pandemic economic recovery is starting to run out. Um, you know, there's, there's a, bit, a bit of that was high base effect. They keep saying that, um, and I did point out in the previous tweet that high base effect meant uh, means in 2022 we had the massive EPF withdrawal in April, May, June 2022, which we did not have this year. So that's kind of like 30, 40 billion ringgit of spending in various areas that we don't have. Uh, but but nobody can deny that the economic recovery for Malaysia has started to sputter a bit, right? So that's one. Um, and second, I guess, point which I'm making down there is that, you know, inflation in Malaysia, as far as the CPI figures are concerned, you know, uh, is, we're back down to kind of what I like to call, what Bank Negara would probably call as acceptable levels. Uh, they, they, they say that in their words as well. Um, and, and I didn't tweet this, but like, it's something for everyone to note. Um, uh, the the BNM NPC might agree with me. Uh, uh, if you if you are the type of hawk, and I, I remember Sunny used to be a hawk that does this right to 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 look at what the central bank actually says rather than what they do. The the words they use because it's very very tactical and strategic. Um, over the last kind of three or four meetings, they've had words like uh, the, uh, actually no more than that. The last two years, they've had words like very accommodative uh, monetary policy, um, and and they actually removed that statement. Right, so in their minds, they are they're no longer communicating that the current OPR is accommodative. Uh, so that for me, that's kind of like a signal that we're unlikely to go anywhere from now. Meaning, it's not going to go up anymore. Right, rate hikes are hundred percent over based on what Bank Negara is saying themselves, um, and they're actually giving themselves a bit of room to even consider cutting. So that's kind of where I'm going with this, which is 
as far as CPI is concerned, Benegar are saying, look, looks like inflation is more or less controlled now. They're, they're having an eye on the, obviously, the new oil numbers coming out, but uh, uh, but inflation is largely controlled. And, and it's very clear to everyone that, that GDP is, is starting to sputter. So, you know, can they help with um, a, bit of, uh, a bit of monetary policy? I think they can. Uh, whether they are going to is a separate issue. But at least, as far as they're concerned, they've left themselves the room to do so. Uh, by removing the statement around being slightly accommodative. So I, I don't know if that gives everyone a nice sense of what I was talking about. Yeah, all right. So uh, I think at the end of the day, it's probably a similar view to Mr. Sunny as well. Uh, we're expecting growth to slow globally and also as well as uh, locally. Uh. I have a slightly different kind of um, view on on OPR. Um, I think the I think Ben Agar will keep it <laughs> for the you know, it's a much used word higher for longer. <laughs> um, the the reason is we've we've gotten back to what we call um, pre almost to I think pre pre pandemic levels. I think pre pandemic was maybe three to five around there if I'm not wrong. Um, so we're at a level where I think they're comfortable to keep it um, neutral, so to say. Uh, until and as when um, the economy starts to slow and show signs of a, a, a downtrend. Uh, we have to remember that um, one of the reasons why Bank Nagara and many central banks in the world have aggressively tried to normalize rates, uh, bringing rates back to pre, pre-pandemic levels, is because when the next recession hits, they, need, they have to have room to move down. Um, and I think they're going to be very, very careful when to use that flexibility. So at three, you can move all the way down to zero. If you don't bring it up enough, you you get stuck at two, you're going to have only 200 basis points to the downside before you hit that so-called boundary of zero. If you start cutting too early, you're going to use up your ammunition um, ahead of, of when it's necessary. Because if you are really headed for a sharp recession or a sharp downturn, they need that buffer in order for monetary policy to work. Because once you hit that lower boundary, monetary policy is, is, is ineffective already. Um, so I think they will try and keep it higher for longer and only use it when absolutely necessary to cut rates. Mm, okay, that's an uh, that's an interesting take, uh, which I also saw quite a few research houses agree with your viewpoint. La. They are looking at uh, Bank Nagara Malaysia to keep the OPR steady at 3% for the rest of the year. Now, uh, let's move on to recommended ETFs. Uh, we recently talked quite a bit about uh, exchange-traded funds. For those of you guys who do not know what ETFs are, it's basically uh, pooling money from investors, and placing the money into a basket of goods or an index that tracks a particular index, so to say. Okay, So uh, what I read online, countless articles, is that they say, hey, uh, don't go hand-picking stocks. You know? Instead, just invest in the U.S. market, specifically uh, funds that track the U.S. market, like the S&P 500 index and the NASDAQ. Okay? So these funds include the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF, uh, VOO, and Investco's QQQ. So, um, Mr. Sunny, I'll let you take this question over here. What do you think about uh, US index market ETFs? Do you like them? And uh, what generally are your preferred ETFs, if you have any? Well, I have to toe the line properly. I can't give financial advice, um, and especially since these are traded instruments. But in general, like I mentioned, um, if you ask me with respect to the US 
stock market in general. Um, there are signs that um, the, the, the not only the market but the economy is, is probably now slowly starting to, to roll over. Um, so I would be very careful um, in, in, in a sense. Uh, you know, even if you people are putting together the S&P 500 together with central bank liquidity charts, um, and it's going, both of them are going opposite direction. They should be going hand-in-hand, hand, high correlation. Liquidity goes up. You see the market going up. But in recent months, central bank liquidity has been reducing, not only in terms of uh, quantitative tightening, but in a few other manners and so on. Um, and yet the market continues to go up. So there is a sense that the market now has taken a life of its own, which is i.e. speculation, um, and there could be an adjustment because of that. So net-net, I would say I would be very cautious when it comes to, to the second half of the year, and especially markets like the U.S., which seem to be a little bit frothy. What I can give is basically a sense of themes, which I think will drive a certain ETS. Uh, so we have told our clients basically that, um, um, and this is not now, but past 12, 18 months, teams like um, technology, especially those with regards to blockchain, digitization of the economy, teams like the climate change, anything that's got to do with that. EV, of course, falls into that and so on. And commodities itself, because when you um, um, uh, restructure and try and decarbonize your economy and such, you need a lot of, um, uh, the irony of it is you need a lot of resources and commodities at the very start of it. Um, so these are three teams which you can easily play uh, you know, via ETS. You know, you can go as minute as targeting single single commodities like, you know, there's a uranium ETF, for example, if you think that nuclear is going to come back and so on and so forth. Yeah, so it's very interesting, uh, um, uh, but that's how, more or less what I can say like, in a very broad sense. All right. Uh, let me pass the question to Han. Han, you previously worked as an investment banker. I'm sure you've dealt with quite a lot of uh, ETFs before. What do you think about US index funds, specifically these three funds, and uh, if you have any funds that you like? Mm, okay, have to be a bit careful too, right? Uh, um, I think, uh, I mean, first thing about ETFs is that they, uh, they, they've been around a while, but very interestingly, you know, ETFs have been around almost, uh, I mean, uh, for probably the entirety of, U.S. Uh, stocks exceptionalism, right? Like we've we've gone through an incredible phase. You have it here, right? Almost forty years. Uh, certainly, last over the last twenty years or so, right? Where the U.S. stock markets have just you know overtake overtaken any everyone, uh, and we see that in our day to day lives as well, right? With uh, with the products we use, you know, technology stuff that we use. Uh, we we wake up, we Google something, we Google Maps to work, we. We use our iPhone, we use our Android. Um, and, and the last twenty years has been quite quite uh, best to describe it. Yeah, an exceptional period for US stocks. Now I'm not saying uh, it's time for it to end. But but you know uh, uh, we just have to be cognizant that it has it has coincided with the rise of ETS too. You know, when I started when I first started working 16, 17, 17 years ago. ETFs were yeah a, a thing that most people heard of, but, but not as not as well known as today, right? So uh, we just keep that in mind that you know uh, if you are choosing an ETF, right? Um, you know what I was gonna say is 
they, they typically should be very broad based, right? Don't try not to go for very sector specific. I know technology is a nice big sector, but you know, uh, try not to go for try not to stock pick within ETFs, right? Or industry pick within ETFs. If you're going for ETFs, the whole point of ETFs is a nice track basket, uh, very representative of a very broad market, low fees, right? If you're starting to pick, then the, you start negating all the benefits of, of ETFs, in my opinion. Uh, so like, like I said, like, uh, you know, the, the large S&P ETFs should not actually differ from each other. So I, you shouldn't have a favorite. Uh, so SPI, SP, sorry, SPY, uh, VOO, these things should be quite tracked with each other, in, in my opinion, right? Um, uh, there are frequently many variations of the same thing. So just look for look out for costs, I would say. Uh, yeah. but yeah, yeah, I think if if it, one more, one more, if if you're if you're a bit a bit like a scary cat like me, I, I generally try not to follow trends too much. You know, I, you know, I have exposure, yes, but I also uh, I I believe that you know nothing goes up forever or nothing outperforms forever. So uh, S and P is good. Uh, um, worth thinking about having some emerging markets in there too, right? To balance that thing out. It's not just I believe in US and US listed companies all the way. It's you know I, I believe in in the industry of humankind. Therefore, in companies, uh, and you want to go beyond just US companies, lah. Yeah. So, ETFs itself, although it's uh, cover a broad range of the market because it tracks the market itself, make sure to perhaps diverse into other countries or. Uh, other markets as well. Uh. Ultimately, I think these financial advisors cannot tell you which specific fund to buy. You would have to do your own research and make sure you check up on the fees as well. Okay, because those fees at the end of the day they can add up to a uh, quite a uh, heavy sum. Okay. So our next topic now. This one is also quite interesting. How to save more? Yeah, a lot of people are struggling to save these days, considering that inflation, despite it declining it still feels quite high. Uh, take this example over here, who is currently 28, this guy, but still earning below 2,000 ringgit per month. Ooh. So yeah, if your salary is uh, below 2K per month, that's a bit worrying uh, because um, it's well below Malaysia's median salary of 2,600 ringgit. Yeah, so I'm depressed on how low my pay is and struggle to save any suggestions. Yeah, I think Han, previously we talked about uh, this extensively right as to how uh, a poor person can climb out of the poverty sinkhole do you mind just you know talking about it in detail as to how uh, what actions that these people could take sure sure as in um you know it can seem very demotivating like i hear some of these stories here on your NGA. Yeah. Right? i mean the first thing i'll say is don't feel down right the best of us started somewhere uh, you know, uh, when I started working, it was it was two thousand as well, right? So it's not it's not it's not it's the, even the best of us, uh, so called, uh, right? Have to start somewhere. Don't feel depressed. The first thing is to get your mind uh, in a positive state, right? Because that's when you can build. You can build off a positive mind. Uh, so that's the first thing I say. Give some encouragement. The very fact that you're asking this question already means you're you're on the right track, right? The fact that you're reaching out, saying, "Hey, look, I need to, I need to solve something financially in my life." or I need to gain financial independence, it's already a good move, right? So the, if you ask me, the, one of the most important things to do is to get yourself in that mind frame of, hey, I need to search out solutions uh, out of my current predicament, right? Uh, 
you know, the, the it's, it's not magic, you know, it's really just income minus expenses is your savings and that savings invested over long term gives you financial independence. That is the secret sauce of, of, of personal finance or, or, or financial independence, right? So to, let's look at the first two parts of that, right? First is income. You say, hey, look, I, I, my, look my pay is too low. Uh, uh, too many companies. You know, I, I, I need to increase my salary. Right? How do I do that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things is to invest in yourself. All the good stuff. Uh, 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 learn as much as you can in your free time. Gain, gain more skills. Those skills have value to 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 your employer, right? And if they don't have, if your employer doesn't value those skills, find an employer which, which values those skills, right? So that's kind of there is a market for skills. If you get skills, you get paid higher. Let's uh, let's just say that first. Um, and then on the expenses side, one of the things I like to say is, look, like you might be earning say two thousand ringgit, maybe just below, uh, but you know, um, uh, there will be somebody or a large number of people in Malaysia earning less than you, and they get by. So the question is, you know, uh, another thing, this, you know, I'm saying this in the most kind of objective, objective way as possible, right? If you earn two thousand, can you live like somebody earning thousand six hundred, right? And you go, hey, it's so difficult. But yeah, somebody is doing that right now, right? Can you, uh, can you put yourself in those, that person's shoes, right? And that's an extra 400 ringgit in your pocket uh, every month, which goes a long way towards your long-term comfort, your long-term kind of financial independence, your long-term financial freedom. So that's the first thing to do. Uh, you know, uh, I know it's tough, but can, imagine somebody living uh, uh, a bit lower than you. Uh, can you live like that for a time to build out a cash buffer? Uh, if you're not able to increase your, your income. Uh, and there are a couple of other tricks. Lah. The one that I, I discussed with you, previously is, is something called pay yourself first. So, you know, we all have bills. We all have commitments, right? Why not treat your future self like a commitment? Right? Say, hey, look, it doesn't matter. Even if it's 100 ringgit, 200 ringgit a month, treat yourself like an electricity bill, uh, a phone bill, like a, a petrol bill, whatever, you could, you could, whatever that makes you stressed out. Make your future self stress you out a bit, right? And make yourself a bill. Um, and commit to paying that bill every month, which is your future self. And, and you'll be surprised how fast you can get your, your emergency funds, your house deposit, your car deposit, etc. Yeah, a good point you mentioned over there. A lot of people, when it comes to saving, right, they always save at the end of the month, right? And at the end of the day, nothing is left. They end up spending the entirety of their salary and probably just have a few ringgit left, right? But uh, like what you said just now, if you opt to pay yourself first, at the start of the month when you receive your salary, you immediately deposit that 100 or 200 ringgit, no matter how small the amount. Uh, that can actually go a long way to your financial freedom like, and climbing out of this uh, poverty sinkhole. So Mr. Sani, uh, Han talked about how to, you know, income minus expenses, yeah. how to, you know, increase your income, reduce your expenses, etc., etc., and live below your means. Now, let's talk a bit about budgeting, right? Because the question over here also asks, how should I allocate my salary for six-month emergency fund, a car deposit, a house deposit, and normal saving, etc., etc.? So, is there any, like, uh, budgeting technique that you prefer? Say, it's like the 50, 30, 20 rule, or, or are you doing something else? Um... I guess everybody is different. I guess you have to reach that that comfort level as to um again it's it's the 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 challenge with this kind of anonymous message is it gives you a kind of a very one dimensional kind of view of of the person and there are many dimensions um to this whole thing. 
um, you know, um, in terms of even to the extent of what you're working as, uh, you know, do you get bonuses, um, you know, how, what's, how's your family makeup, is it just you, do you have kids, and, and so on and so forth. So we, we, I think Hans and I, when, when we answer, we're just answering with um, our hands tied behind our back a little bit and making a lot of assumptions. So I just wanted to put that uh, up front first. So in terms of, of, of all of this, um, setting aside um, how much will also depend on how much you can save actually because once you set aside you're you're actually saving and 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 putting all of this aside um and really depends on 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 your overall uh, income minus expenditure um of course you spend less then you will have more to save and therefore each and every bucket uh, you can do so um the, the only thing i can add here is um, the most pri- in terms of priorities it's always best to save for your emergency first uh, and then prioritize what's what's the other thing that that needs to be saved up. Um, uh, is a car more important than the house? Um, the only problem is if you try and save five percent here, five percent there, five percent here. You're saving maybe fifty ringgit, maybe at most a hundred ringgit. It's not going to get you anywhere, in my view. Uh, um, if you're looking to save a couple of thousand to put down a deposit for a house for a car, so you may want to just say I'm saving for my first priority, which is maybe the house first, or rather the emergency first. The emergency is, of course, the first one, then the house second, then the car third. I think you you will, you will reach those <clears throat> minimum deposit needed faster rather than breaking them up. That would be my, my view itself uh, when it comes to this. Yeah, in the case of emergency fund, right, uh, I can't stress the importance of it. Lah. Having uh, not, 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 you don't need to have six months, but at least have some money stashed away somewhere, maybe a thousand ringgit, yeah. Just in case something bad happens, you do not have to, uh, you know, liquidate your investments or your future money in order to pay off this uh, sudden unfortunate event. La. So make sure you guys have at least, you know, a bit, some of money stashed somewhere safely uh, that you can use and that is liquid, la. okay. So the next question, uh, this one is also quite interesting. Long commute times to office, good or bad? Yeah, this one has been uh, brought up by Suraya also. And uh, I tagged along from Suraya and decided to post it here as well because I have a question about this. I'm driving to the office for around 45 minutes, need to leave early, one and a half hours back. So every day, it's easily two over hours of travel time. Yeah, it has a lot of travel time, huh? But my wife travels via public transport, which is just 100 meters away from my house. My rent is cheap, i.e. it's three to 500 ringgit below the market, and the environment is healthy, complete amenities, and no foreigners. Should I change my job or should I move out? Now, this is another tough question, but I will pass it over to you, Lahan. Um, is long commute times to office a good thing or should they actually move closer to the work environment or perhaps change job, accept the lower pay? I, I think it's completely personal, uh, personally. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I live five minutes from my workplace, right? And I, I do that by design. Uh, because of, as in, I, I don't want to spend too much time on the road. Uh, I don't want to burn too much petrol. I don't want to burn too much of my car's depreciation, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and for me, time is, is really important, right? Like the, the, if it's half an hour, 45 minutes, that's, that's time I could be spending with my family uh, or, or, or learning a new skill, right? like I said earlier, right? which is money, right? Time is money uh, in that sense. 
but then cost comes into play, so it really depends. So for example, if if you live in a, if you live far from your office because of cost reasons, then obviously for me to say move closer to your office uh, and pay more, uh, that that doesn't make sense, right? Because uh, you might end up uh, uh, paying more than what you save in all those things I said about you saving petrol, time, uh, and car depreciation. But if you're in a situation where, hey, look, actually, you can actually move closer to where you work and not pay that much more, right? Um, then for me, it's a win-win, right? You go closer, you save time, you save money. Um, uh, and, and for me, that's kind of uh, 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 the holy grail, right? You, 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 you save time, you save money, and, and, and even in your housing, you save because maybe your workplace is not like in KLCC or, or whatever. Um, but actually, for this, for this poster, I think, happy wife, happy life. Better talk to your wife first. Not, 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 not us. Uh, if your wife is happy about it, better don't move and then you'll get an unhappy wife later. Uh, or, or at least talk to your wife and move to somewhere that's, uh, that's, that, that she's happy with too. Uh, uh, but for the second poster, I think, um, uh, that, that is the opposite of what I said, right? Which is, move out further for more expensive for me, that, that's the, the opposite of a holy grail. I don't know what you call that. Lah. Yeah, yeah. Now, an interesting part where Suraya pointed out over here is that um, she recommends as much as possible to stay, where, uh, to stay near where you work because there is a study that she published, uh, which I did not attach over here. Um, an additional 20 minutes of commuting per day has the same negative effect as receiving a 19% pay cut. So I'll just keep it over there, Han. What, what do you think about this? And uh, let's say if this person has no wife right now, no commitments, yeah, uh, what, 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 what do they do? I think it depends. La. I think uh, that might be true in general. But for the individual, you might enjoy the commute, right? You might enjoy sitting in your car, listening to a podcast. You might enjoy sitting in public transport for half an hour, reading a book, or like I said, listening to a podcast, watching a video, whatever it may be. But the, the key is, if you're finding yourself a drag, right, and it's a drag on time and money, then I, I agree with Soraya here. Uh, better move in. Moving closer, uh, but keep in mind, it, you know, uh, why you're staying far away in the first place. If it's cost reasons, totally understandable. Save up until you can afford it. But if it's not cost reasons, I think you should just certainly consider. So, for example, if you if you work in, I, uh, as in, I'm just giving, I'm just spitballing here, lah, right? If you work in, um, uh, you work in Shalam and you stay in 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 Rawang, right? There's no need to do that because there's there's decent places close enough to to Shalam to stay. Uh, you're far away from you know urban center, uh, specifically our 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 capital centers are our. Uh, economic center in like KLCC or, or, or Bukit Bintang or Mid Valley, those kind of very expensive places to stay around, right? They're both kind of suburban. You can move from one suburban area closer to another suburban area. Mm. All right. Uh, Mr. Sunny, what are your thoughts on this? Is long commute times good or bad? Do you enjoy driving your, 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 your rented car or your own car or not to work? There, there was a point in time where people um, would want to stay as far as possible from where they work. Um, but I think times have changed uh, because of the jams and the price of petrol and stuff. Um, so everybody wants to stay as close as possible uh, to where they were. Not everybody, but the majority of them. But it's easier said than done, like what Hans, uh, Hans mentioned. It's, it's, you know, it, it's, not, it's a question of whether you can afford it, you know, uh, what do you give up in terms of if you 
pay more rental, you pay more for the home that's next to work, and, you know, you're not able to enjoy other things, you give up your vacation, you give up your this, you give up your that. So it's never an easy question, it's always a balance of, of priorities. Um, so at the end of the day, you may commute to work and it takes you an hour or so, but you then are able to use the additional cash that you save up to send your children for tuition, for their football classes that you love to see them go to, and you can have your vacation with your family because you know you've saved some money by staying further away. So there's always a give and take in, in these scenarios. And again, like I mentioned, it's not it's not an easy question to answer. It's really a case to case basis for different families. Yeah. So uh, at the end of the day, if you are talking about saving costs, like what Hans said just now, then maybe staying far away from your work and at the same time building up your uh, financial independence, so to say, uh, is probably a good thing to do. But if there is no great increase in cost, then it's actually probably better to stay near where you work. Maybe people should start to have discussions with their officers or their ministry, their companies um, in terms of you know, if you're in Singapore, basically two two days, two days work from home is now getting quite common, uh, um, quite common, uh, because uh, let's face it, uh, if we if during the uh, lockdowns you could actually function and and your productivity was quite high, working from home itself, um, the companies understand. Um, the companies um, may may again, I'm saying may come to agreement arrangements where you could uh, work from home on certain days maybe again I'm speculating maybe it could come to a point where they say okay fine you know take a 19% pay cut and you can work from home the whole the whole time who knows you know 19% pay cut work from home this is a tough choice tough choice no but that's what that's what the study is saying here right the satisfaction as receiving a 19% pay cut yeah. Yeah. So, so if you know traveling actually results in you thinking that oh, this is such a waste of time. I'd rather have ninety percent less pay than traveling every day. Then maybe that's the answer to it. Yeah, that's a good point you mentioned. Okay, and uh, uh, put it back to the audience. You guys have to consider for yourselves, like what Mister Sunny said just now. Think about it as say, if I have a twenty percent pay cut and I reduce my commuting time by twenty minutes. Is it worth it or not? If it's worth it, then yeah, you can probably talk to your employer about it and see if you guys can come to an agreement. Okay, so now moving on to the uh, next topic, pros and cons of corporate companies. Now, this one is also another interesting one. Uh, can be slightly controversial. Hi, Futurist. I'm 29, currently working in a small accounting firm that pays me a decent salary but with great flexibility and work experience, non-toxic colleagues, etc. Wow. This accounting firm must be very nice uh, because I've never heard of someone working as an accountant and have you know good flexibility and good work experience. But anyway, uh, recently was offered a job at one of the big four companies. Congratulations. Should I change my job or stay with the current small company? Oh, yeah, another tough question. Uh, Han, I'll pass it to you. What do you think about this? Hmm. Um... I think it comes down personally to whether uh, you want to stay a professional or you want to uh, uh, become some sort of entrepreneur or, or work in an SME yourself, right? So if you want to be a professional, then I think you should definitely take, take the offer. Go to the big four, uh, get that experience. There's a reason why they are the big four. They work with the biggest clients, the most complex stuff. You learn all kinds of stuff. 
you learn about uh, new processes which are used globally. Uh, and if you hate it after one, two years, you can always move back to a small firm. And guess what? You move back to a small firm from a big four, I, I can promise you your salary will be much higher. Not, not, not versus the big four, but much higher than you are getting currently. Right? So that's the kind of... Uh, if you hate it after one, two years, you can always just move back. Now with you know, EY, PwC, Deloitte in your CV, which is always a great thing if you want to be a professional. Um, if, if you're not so bit hard up on becoming like the kind of you know, audit partner of the auditor or whatever, right? you might, you know, you, 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 you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to work for yourself, or, or you don't have that kind of dreams of grandeur, right? you go, I'm just happy in my job right now. Uh, uh, then yeah, I think it's worth saying. Why? Because small firm, uh, you, you, know, you might get a little bit more freedom in terms of processes. You, might more, more, you, you get to think more creatively by, by nature, right? Uh, you, you work with clients which are a little more creative. I want to use that word very liberally uh, in nature. Right? So I, I guess that's kind of, those, those will be my considerations. Mm, yeah, the question boils down to whether you want to uh, be, be a professional or become a bit more entrepreneurial. Okay. Mr. Sunny, um, although you're far away from this age 29, but <laughs> let's, say, let's say you... you... I, I, was, I was 29 once. <laughs> you, you 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 were you you were, you were twenty nine once lah. Okay, but let's say you were in this you are in this situation. What will you do? Um, it depends on what you aspire. Again, twenty nine here. The person didn't say it was male or female or whatever. I'm not trying to be sexist, but if if you are someone, if I were twenty nine, okay, um, I would feel that basically the idea is to gain as much experience as possible. Um, if staying in the big company or, or small or big, I don't care. If staying in this one particular company gives me the ability to learn as much as I can, then I would actually choose that company because when I reach 30 odd, that's when I want to start hitting for the big guns and going for the the, the, the bigger company. So if this guy here is saying that, for example, small accounting firm pays me decent but great flexibility work experience, if he's been there for five, six years, he's learned every single corner of the of the of the career and workflow. Um, then that's why he should actually to me he should actually move to the big four. That's where he gets to be valued. That's where that's where his valuation, uh, personal valuation is 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 um you know is appreciated. You know he'll be valued fully for what he knows. If it's a, if it's for example, again, I'm trying to be sexist, but say, let's say if it's a, it's a, a lady who just, you know, I'm going to get married, I'm going to have children, I'm going to be, I'm just happy where I am. This is then staying put is fine, you know. So different people have different aspirations. Um, so it's hard to say also whether it's 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 you know different aspirations will take them on different paths. Um, so, but if it were me, I would say go if I had learned everything I had. I have to in this couple of years in this in this firm itself. Yeah, I mean, sorry, just want to chime in. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, it's a good point because, uh, and I should point out that uh, you know, uh, in my line of work, I speak to quite a lot of the big four. Uh, you know, be it audit, tax, or or, or consulting, and I what I can share with the posters is that actually the big four are starting to go, uh, uh, starting to be a lot more flexible with work. Uh, and and be a lot less toxic in their work environment and and you know I I know a bit for you know great salary great flexibility uh totally non toxic right uh, that's what I mean that's what I'm hearing uh, and this is driven by uh, uh I don't want to point the, the finger at Singapore again 
but driven by significant attrition from the big four to Singapore. Yeah. Uh, meaning the, the big four are losing a lot of their people to Singapore. The pay is better there. Stress level is higher, but pay is better. But so they're having to, they're struggling to retain, which makes them have to do these things. Like higher salary, more work-life balance, more flexibility. Uh, so I would say to the poster, actually worth considering anyway, you might find the big four not too bad uh, versus what you expected. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great, great points from you guys. Uh, thank you so much. So um, the last and final topic of the night is what do youngsters need to know? Uh, this one is for the next generation out there like, and for those people who are currently probably below 23 or maybe below 20, okay? So turning 18 next year, what are the first steps I should do to first solidify my financial foundation? We have a 16-year-old guy also, wow, very young, following the futures already. Uh, but I have no clue about investing and want to start right. Any tips? Yeah, so Han, word for the uh, youngsters out there, the next generation, what do they you know, need to focus on? Studies, no, sorry, that sounds very uncle. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, uh, I think I'm very encouraged uh, but that your audience is so young. Uh, look, like at, at 16, 18, like I, only, I was only starting to learn about, you know, finance stuff, right? principles of finance stuff. So you guys are really on the right track, really, like, by asking the right questions. Uh, for me, the key is to... to, to to, I'm assuming you're still in uh, still university, college, university, right? And you want to start right, start reading, right? Start reading about personal finance. Uh, start reading about investing. Uh, there are loads of good books out there. You don't need me to 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 to, to recommend them, right? Like uh, start reading on on value investing, on technical analysis, on personal finance, uh, credit, um, i.e. like um, uh, you know, uh, uh, saving, credit, budgeting, investing, all the kind of stuff, all kinds of good books out there. Just Google, you'll find them one. Amazon, Goodreads, whatever. Uh, and uh, take it from there, right? And then second is to actually start uh, uh, exploring, right? There's no better teacher than not just reading, but, you know, if you've got 100 bucks to, to invest, put 100 bucks somewhere, right? And and you'll never have a better lesson than than losing money on that 100 bucks. Right, or making money as the case may be, but most most likely losing. Uh, so I'll say yeah, those two things. Number one, absorb as many of these books as possible. You'd be surprised uh, whether you you find that you actually are interested in it or not. Uh, 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 on worst case scenario, you find you're not that interested, and you're like, okay lah, it's it's not that interesting. Uh, I'll just do the normal stuff. Uh, best case scenario, you find it very interesting, get deeper into it, and then build your knowledge base. So that's one part. Learn. Second part is uh, learn by doing. So learn by reading and learn by doing. Start investing. Like open a CS account. You can't at 16. So ask your parents or something. Uh, but at 18, you can already. So at 18, you can open CDS account, invest in unit trust and in ETFs and whatnot. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, basically before you actually put money into the market, make sure you put money on yourself. Lah. Make sure you have... Uh, at least a bit or decent amount of knowledge uh, on those products and, and then you start to dive into it. And uh, Han, I think you constantly mention this also for those people who are young. You have the time to actually afford to explore higher risk, higher return options, right? Because uh, you have less to lose compared to those people who are at 50 or 60 or, or close to retirement. Yeah. Um, so Miss, Mr. Sunny, same question for the youngsters. Uh, turning 16, turning 18, uh, whatever the young age, lah, okay. Uh, considering that you're in their shoes, what will you do? If I 
if if I were at this age, I know it sounds a little bit um, difficult, but if there was a way you could find a, a qualified financial advisor to sit down with you, um, it would have been something I would have done. It's just that it just didn't cross cross my mind. It wasn't something you typically do at the age of eighteen or even sixteen or or, or stuff like that. Maybe especially sixteen, but let's say eighteen, nineteen. You know, and the reason is basically they will help you chart out more or less um, financially the path that you're going to go through. You know, very simple stuff like you know, you anybody who's taken a CFP hands would know you. You have that so-called life cycle where. Uh, at what point in life you start earning more and you get children, then you start saving less and stuff. So understanding these concepts itself and then having someone put it into a framework to tell you that, look, at this point in life when you reach here, you ought to be saving as much as you can. Because why? Because you won't be able to save when you start to get married. Um, you need to get enough insurance because why? At any point in time, anything happens to you, you have some backing here. And you know, don't listen to people when they say, you know, insurance is a waste of money and stuff. Because I've seen people who actually, um, thanks to insurance, they are they are where they are. And I've seen people who don't have it going to accident and they just wiped out all their savings and stuff. So, so this life experience also will help them. And so, so these kind of pointers and hinters at that kind of age kind of gives you a little a bit of um, uh, 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 a pathway uh, to understand what lies ahead and what you can do. Because the rest of us who didn't get these kind of hinters and pointers, which is the majority of us, basically learned the hard way and started to have financial advisors come into our lives in our 30s and 40s, you know. And, and by that time, it's, you know, if you've you know, if we had done things earlier, it would have been so much better. So I, I do seriously think there was a way that someone at a very young age can pick up these kind of skills. And I, for example, intend to teach my kids who are now, you know, uh, uh, one is 19, another one is 16. Uh, they are almost at a point where, where I'm going to sit them down and, and really grill them into this is how you are going to approach finances for the next for the rest of your life you know uh, so so these are things which i think um is missing it's not easy no one's going to pay you know you can't you, you probably don't have enough money to pay for uh, for financial advice but if you could read up and stuff like that i think that would be good yeah and i think ultimately for any of the youngsters out there or any age like perhaps if there's any burning question that you need to be uh, that you need to ask but afraid to you know, hire a financial planner. I'm sure both of these speakers are more than happy to accept your questions and they will give you the best answer that probably you can get. Okay, With, without any cost, like, hopefully. Okay, so uh, do message these two speakers on Twitter. They are on Twitter, okay? Uh, if you have any burning questions regarding to finance. Uh, next up is uh, probably a bonus question because we don't have any questions from the audience. I think this is also another interesting one. Uh, 26-year-old here, newbie on investing. I understand that credit cards, if used correctly and paid off monthly, it can boost your credit score. For example, buying a house, cars, banks will give you lower interest rates. But personally, I'm a frugal person. Is it worth it to apply for a credit card just to build your credit, uh, credit score? Han, you, run, you, you were the founder of Ringgit Plus, uh, specializing in credit card deals. What do you think about this? Should younger people actually... Uh, go for credit cards just to build their credit score. No? Put me on the spot, huh? Yeah, can. 
Um, okay. Uh, honestly, <laughs> like nice. two, uh, two, two reasons lah. Like, one, uh, you know, you, you also covered this Shinji, right? Which is credit cards are like fire, right? If you're a smart guy, you can handle fire. It's very useful. Cook food, stay warm, right? But if you don't handle it properly, fire can burn you. Similarly, like if you are if if you know how to use it, a credit card can be very useful, right? And and add value to your life, not destroy it. Right. Things like cashback, things like points, things like discounts, things like uh 0% payment plans, like that kind of stuff that helps your cash flow. These are all good stuff that you can use a credit card for, which you should, right? If if you if you are able to be disciplined just like when I tell you know, my, my son don't play with fire, right? The question is whether he will actually listen to me or not. Uh, but when he's older, he certainly knows, right? And he certainly can use fire for the right reason, not, not play with it. Uh, so similarly, I'll use this, give the same advice, right? Which is, if you're able to use it, please do. It's very useful on its own without even considering the credits cost side. Uh, but yes, in my over 10 years at Ringgit Plus, uh, uh, not anymore, but you know, previously, uh, one of the things that that, that uh, the secrets of industry is that indeed uh, your current credit facilities are a strong, strong indicator of uh, your credit worthiness, right? The fact that you actually already have a facility, a credit card is a good one. Having a couple looks good on your score. If you pay it off in full every month, uh, uh, even if you pay off the minimum every month, it's good enough for them. But for me, I'll advise everyone to pay off in full. Uh, but they will look at your score. Uh, sorry, they will look at your credit Number number of credit cards you have, versus, as well as you know home loans and car loans and etc. to to give you uh, 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 to score you right score your credit worthiness whether they score it for pricing i.e. you get lower rates or they score it for approvability it means you actually get approved for a bank with a low rate. Uh, both are useful. So for me, two reasons. And for me, if you're a frugal person, you certainly use a credit card uh, for the first reason, right? For sure, because you 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 ultimately make money, right? Uh, but yeah, long term for sure, right? Uh, it's to answer the question. All right, yes, it is worth it to apply for just one, not just apply, approve, and use it and and pay it off in full, uh, just for the score. Because if you get uh, approved by a bank which gives you a cheap rate because your score is good, then you've made you've made it back in full, right? Yeah. Another thing about credit cards, right? So to look for the best credit card deals, just go Ringgit Plus, I check. I checked out the website already. I think it's one of the you know, best aggregators for, you know, things about personal finance, etc, etc. Plus now they are giving a free touch and go credit of worth 800 ringgit. So anyway, guys, go and check it out. Uh, I'm going to pass this question over to Mr. Sunny right now. Applying a credit card as a young person, is it worth it just for the credit score? What do you think, Mr. Sunny? If it's, if it's just for the credit score, I mean, you have no choice, right? I mean, just weirdly enough, you have to have a credit card to have a credit score. That's the weirdest thing I found. I find basically um, you try to be the frugal person and not get trapped into this credit trap. And yet to get a credit score, you have to have a credit card. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. But anyway, if it's just for that, then can't help it. <laughs> you have to get it. Yeah. Um, but if you're, going to talk, talk, if you're going to ask me whether I believe in credit cards, I'm one of the minority which don't really fancy credit cards you know I, I i think it's it's like what han says if you're you need to know how to use it is a knife can cut both ways you can actually use it use uh, in a in a in a good manner it helps you or you can actually do a lot of harm with with the knife itself and my my issue with credit cards is i think uh, the majority of people don't know how to use it 
Okay, so it's one thing to say that um, drinking a glass of wine is fine. You know, I don't get drunk and I'm fine and, and it, it helps my heart and such. Uh, but the, for the vast majority, um, they start to binge on it. Um, so you don't blame the wine. Uh, you just blame the, the people who just cannot control. But that's it. So do you serve or don't you serve the wine? It's a question of, um, in my view, in my view, personal view, totally personal view. Um, the majority will have to be safeguarded from from something like like this, lah. In my view, lah. Yeah. So it's a little bit uh, a radical view, but I think credit cards. I think there's more danger to it than 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 benefits if you take it from a very wide thirty thousand helicopter view of the whole community, lah. Yeah, there's also a dark side that uh, we are probably not exploring is that uh, credit cards they give you the illusion of affordability, right? Because you don't actually feel the pain of uh, buying something up from with cash. It's, it's, it's with credit, it's same like this buy now, pay later features, right? Like those features that allow you to buy a random product. Like uh, today I want to buy this, I don't know, maybe this pen or this book by installment, right? Then you end up uh, not actually feeling the weight of that particular uh, cost of, of that product. Uh. So at the end of the day, you end up spending more. It's these things where, whereby you think you're in control, you know, um, and I do say, and I do agree that a vast, well, that a minority will always be in control, but the vast majority of people will maybe in control at the beginning, but sooner or later, I've got this emergency. Maybe I just, I have this flexibility and this easy thing to use credit card, just swipe it and use it. And then once you get used to it, oh, I've got a second emergency, or there's sometimes not emergency, or now my nothing, I'm so used to it. That is really, to me, the downside of it. Uh, people will then get sooner or later um, uh, a group of them will fall into the trap of not being able to service it and the big question is at the end of the day f as, from a communal basis community basis um, does the benefit outweigh the, the, the cost of it yeah ultimately it is a tool lah. so uh, a tool can go both ways make sure you use it wisely and uh, it can actually benefit you quite a lot Okay, so uh, I think now we are down to our final question of the night. Yeah, since nobody is uh, asking questions. So another bonus question. Now this one is uh, quite interesting also. If I'm earning overseas and I've already paid tax overseas, can I still voluntarily contribute to EPF? Will I get tax in Malaysia over this uh, voluntary contribution? Han, do you know anything about this? Because um, from what I've read online, is that once your income is taxed overseas, uh, Malaysia won't tax any uh, foreign income like, in, in, in terms of individual. Yeah, there's something called double taxation law. So you as in you'll get if the if you pay more tax than Malaysian tax, you you'll get the rebate, right? You won't get you won't pay double tax. Uh, but I guess the sounds like this this the, the poster is is a bit confused around uh tax versus EPF, right? EPF is essentially private pension. Right. Uh, so don't worry. You won't get taxed in Malaysia, uh, by contributing to EPF. Uh, there's something in, in the EPF called self contribution. So if you are a freelancer or a gig worker or or you you're you're not even you're not you're just you're just sitting in Malaysia as as a Malaysian, you can actually open an EPF account for yourself and start contributing yourself up to a hundred thousand ringgit a year. So, uh, so you can put in it's like then treat it like your your unit trust la, of which EPF is is in fact a form of unit trust, right? It's 
if you put money, pull it, other investors make investments, right? Uh, or EPF makes investments on your behalf. So yeah, to, to answer your question, number one, yes, you can contribute to EPF. You can open up uh, what, what are they calling it? Uh, 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 ISRR account. And you, in fact, you get some matching from government. First 250 ringgit a year. Uh, but the limit is one hundred thousand a year. If, if like yeah, you're a very high income earner, you can actually save up to hundred thousand a year. Not bad. Um, uh, I think that's yeah. In short, and then you won't be taxed on it. In fact, you might get a tax break, right? If you uh, uh you may get a matching from from government, and uh, uh, I think it's about three hundred a year you get matched. Also, there's also like a tax relief on EPF, right? That the uh... Uh, that can apply to voluntary contribution. Uh, but I think this won't apply to this poster in, in, in this scenario because the individual has already paid tax overseas. Uh, I guess the question is that, you know, if I'm bringing foreign income back from overseas to Malaysia, uh, will it get taxed or not? Right? And, and, and I don't think so, right, Han? Because he already mentioned that he has paid tax overseas, right? Yeah, I mean, if your income has not been taxed anywhere and you remit it back, uh, the, I think since 2022, there has been um, a foreign source income tax, right? But like for somebody who's already paying tax overseas, you just remit it back, right? What in theory, as in the, the, sorry, in practice, what happens is that they charge the tax on it, but then they you can you can just say, hey, look, like, I already paid tax on this, right? And in most other countries, it's higher than Malaysia's, right? In Malaysia's tax rates. So you have paid quite a lot more tax than you would have if you stayed here. So you there's in most countries we have a double tax treaty. Uh so you would not have to pay tax twice, essentially. Mm, okay. So uh, Mr. Sani, just before we uh end tonight's session, do you want to take a bite on this question? Voluntary contribute to EPF? I think the big the big debate is whether you should voluntarily contribute and see the money get stuck there. Or you are better to just take the money and invest yourself and grow it potentially at a much faster pace. Um, my own view is um, you should do it voluntarily um, because of, first of all, it's not everything. There's a limit to it. I always find it very astonishing. I'm very astonished every time I open up my CPF and I see the balance amount inside. I say, wow, you may have got so much set aside for my retirement. Um, and it's because when you do it automatically and voluntarily, um, you 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 can't touch it. That's very important. A lot of times I've tried to save, and and I don't know whether this is the same problem with everybody, that the money is there, but there's always something for it to be used. I mean, there's something that needs that needs used for it to be used, and I, I tend to dip into it and just ends up, you know, uh, not reaching its objective and such. So, for savings, to me, is uh, necessary. It doesn't have to be 100% of what, what you have, but if you can set aside more, um, it's, I think it's beneficial. At the end of the day, the money gets saved and you will reap the benefit of it um, when you retire. I mean, let's just uh, stay on this question a bit longer, okay? And, and I want to direct it to Han as well. Uh, assuming that this guy is self-employed, uh, they have no requirement to actually apply for an EPF account, if not mistaken, but they can if they want to. Uh, what do you think, Han? Should they apply for a self-contribution EPF account and start voluntarily contributing? Or, or, or do you agree on the flip side of what Mrs. Sane said that, hey, uh, use the money for investments uh, by yourself? I think... I think it, uh, it's a mix of, of both Sunny's question, uh, answer and mine, right? Which is if you have, if you are earning overseas, you've got, you know, 
you've got the um, uh, investment plan over there already. Uh, yeah, sure. The only reason why you might consider opening up EPF is that you plan to retire in Malaysia and then you want to have somewhere in Malaysia to, to put some money, um, uh, you know, which is exposed to Malaysian assets in Malaysian ringgit, right? Um, and you don't mind it being locked up for retirement because that's the exact reason why you're doing it. Uh, but, you know, if if you're not, you're earning overseas, you're already saving up for a pension overseas, uh, whether it's private or state pension, doesn't matter, right? What, uh, it probably is not a very good idea for you to lock out your money, more of your money for the long term, if you're already doing that, right? Then you might want to consider more flexible uh, investment options, right? That don't require you to lock out your money till you're 50 or 55. Uh, but then you're going to have to do a bit of research, find out, okay, what's the appropriate... Investment strategy for me based on my objective. So goes back to your objective at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. And also, I guess this is another interesting question is that should youngsters, you know, considering that they already have the mandatory EPF contribution, uh, should they actually con uh, contribute voluntarily to EPF every month? A small amount. Let's say maybe, you know, 30, 50 ringgit just to have a bit more savings for their retirement. What do you think, Han? Same, same, same. Same considerations apply like If you're looking for somewhere to 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 earn five to six percent, uh, fairly low risk because it's it's a big pool, uh, and you're willing to lock your money up to your fifty or fifty five. Yeah, sure, that's kind of something to consider. Uh, if you're sitting in Malaysia, living in Malaysia, and paying Malaysian tax, then there's obviously the tax benefit as well. Uh, but other than those two things, like you know, uh, there there are other ways to earn five to six percent a year uh, over the long term, right? If you're if you're if you speak to a financial advisor or financial planner, they they will give you a couple of portfolios which can do that, right? Without the without the restrictions of EPF. Yeah, yeah, Mister Sunny, same question. Uh. Voluntarily contribute to EPF, uh, for youngsters, small sum, so say thirty to fifty ringgit a month. What do you think? Yeah, same same answer I gave earlier, which means that um, I believe that setting aside money in in this kind of forced savings. Uh, will surprise you as as it has surprised me. Um, you could do it this way. You could do it in another way. You could do it separately. But the big question is discipline and and you know um, whether you are disciplined enough not to touch the money. I find EPF or even CPF uh, a very disciplined way uh, where you know it's really money for my old age. Put it in. I can't touch it no matter what I want to do. Um, and when I look at it now, it's like, well, thankfully, I, I, I started early and put in a few extra dollars inside. So I would actually recommend if it was my kid um, to put, not all again, like I mentioned, but to put some aside uh, extra potentially even above what he has, what he's contributing. Yeah, there's also a, a very good example, which I posted on Twitter regarding voluntary contribution. Assuming that, you know, you contribute an additional 50 ringgit per month, uh, then over the course of 30 years, your EPF retirement funds will actually increase by 10%, which is uh, not a small sum, lah, okay, considering that you know you retire by the hundreds of thousands. Okay? Uh, but we have a question from Lynette over here. If we contribute to EPF but end up settling overseas or migrating, can we withdraw the money later? Oh, this, I think definitely can withdraw, right, Han? This one. Hmm... Not 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 so straightforward answer. Uh, uh honestly, um, there's it depends how old you are, obviously. So if you are uh, if you are fifty, fifty five, then no no issue, lah, right? Uh, uh, but 
um, you've got there's something there's something called closing on on return uh, closing on leaving the country, right? So if you have there's two types like one, if you are a citizen, you must actually give up your citizenship. Uh, if you are if you are just a resident, or rather if you are an expat sitting in Malaysia, and you leave Malaysia. Let's say you are a Singaporean, you leave Malaysia, go back to Singapore. Uh, yes, you can close your account, take out all your money. But if you are a Malaysian, uh, you must uh, renounce your citizenship yeah. as a as a requirement to to withdraw all your EPF savings. Uh, so that's kind of uh, it's a bit nuanced. It's not as simple as just settling overseas. What does that mean? Migrating. What does that mean? Uh, if it's you want to retain your citizenship, just migrate. No, you cannot. You cannot uh, take out your EPF. But if you um if you give up your citizenship, then yes. Mm. All right. So it's not so, uh, it's not so straightforward, lah. Okay. And uh, mm. like what like what we talked about just now, voluntary contribution, which Mister Sunny uh, really supported. Here's the math, lah. Okay. Assuming that you're a fresh grad, your salary is two point four k per month. Uh, we do not include. Salary increments, bonuses, and inflation, right? After 30 years, you will have 459,000 ringgit, okay? Uh, but if you voluntarily contribute 50 ringgit per month, which is a lot of money, within the same time frame, you have almost 500,000 ringgit, which is uh, almost 10% higher than the original sum over here, okay? But uh, do note that by doing so, you will not withdraw your funds until you are 50, uh, because a lot of people tend to have this misunderstanding, right, Han? They think that hey, at the age of 50, I still cannot withdraw from EPF yet. But you can actually withdraw from... Which account is it already? Is it account 1 or account 2? Uh? I, mean, I may need your help on this one. Eh. Account 2. If you still have money in account 2, you can take out account 2, which is typically, if you haven't withdrawn anything, it's 30%. about 30% of... Yeah, yeah. yeah, 30, 30%. Okay, okay. Yeah, so uh, when, you're, when you're 50, you can withdraw 30% of your EPF funds. Like. Then 55, you can either go for like a monthly repayment type of thing or uh, withdraw it lump sum. Am I right? Yep. yep. Okay. That's right. Okay. And uh, yeah, I think that brings us to the end of our session tonight. Hopefully, it has been beneficial to you guys. I myself, I learned tons of things also from these two speakers. And uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for joining. Uh, thank you to the speakers as well.